Father, we come to you tonight and we can't say thank you enough that we stand here as sinners and yet you chose to love us beyond as we hear tonight what Paul said. There's no dimension that we could possibly compare to your love. It, it goes deeper than deep. It goes wider than wide. It goes higher than high. That we are truly loved and we're forgiven when we've stood condemned, when there was a, we made that choice. It, it was grace that changed it. Father, tonight we, we just pray that this word, that word grace, really takes a hold of our hearts. And that we see that we stand uncondemned now because we are loved and because we are forgiven. So thank you for this book of Ephesians, that the more we go over, there is just no better way that we could have a victorious day, even when we find that not every day goes the way we want it. Father, thank you for this study that is transforming us so that we can live life so different than what the world tells us. Father, we give you praise. You are worthy for this marvelous, infinite, matchless grace that you are willing to give, that undeserved favor you are willing to give us so that we can stand here in freedom to know the promises that we are going to experience without question, the hope that we can live in because you are real and true. So tonight, we just praise you for this opportunity that you've given us. Father, it truly can be life-changing. We can leave here different than when we came. That's what your word and your spirit can do in our hearts. So may we be willing to not grieve your spirit tonight, but open ourselves up to hear what he wants. And it might be convicting, it might be challenging, it might be maybe not what we wanted to hear tonight, but you know what's best for us. And maybe tonight we will leave so encouraged. You know us so well. And so we just say, do what you have to do tonight so that we can leave here knowing you better. And we pray this all in our Savior's name. Amen. So here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it's all that I need. All right. Ephesians 3 and 4, I don't know if you're taking the challenge that I gave to you or not. I mean, it's between you and the Lord. I mean, you know what you need to do, but I have, it's kind of an experiment that I needed for myself. And I have just loved putting all my devotionals away just for, just for this summer, and I'm just concentrating on this particular book. Now, every day for, for three weeks, because we were here three weeks ago, every day for three weeks, I have read three and, three and four, every day. And you would think, at least this is what I thought would happen, I would, okay, okay, I know that, you know, because every day, but every day was something more that, that just came off the page. But in all honesty, I have to confess that there would be days that I, I had to go back to one and two, two. I just had to read one and two over again. But 
this book is so rich. Because what do you use a devotional for? Usually in the morning, you start with your devotions, a devotional. And, and what do you want it to do? You want it to set your mood and your attitude and yourself. You're ready for the day with the Lord on the throne. You're ready for to listen to him. And, you know, you're getting yourself prepared for whatever this day might bring. Because we've all lived long enough to know that there's always surprises. And so a devotion kind of gets you centered in. And I'm telling you, I have yet to read one particular book. I didn't know Ephesians was so self-contained to give us everything that we need to, to live that kind of day. I mean, you know, when, when he starts out with Ephesians 1 saying, um, do you realize who you are in Christ Jesus? Do you realize that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing straight from the throne of God? I mean, when was the last time you really thought about that? It's like Paul is saying, I want you to see. And then, and then in chapter 2, you know, he says, but I never want you to forget where you came from. That what you were before Jesus came into your life, before you really saw what he could do in your life. Know where you were and where you were hidden. And then tonight as we start this chapter... It's kind, of, it's kind of like he has this chapter to show us, do you know why I did that for you? It's because my love for you is so beyond what, what you even think. And I want you to know that you've got power within you that can do the impossible. And, you know, I, I just think that it's just the whole full story. So in your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 3. And it starts this way, for this reason, for this reason, and I hope that stopped you. I hope you stopped there because you want to know, well, what reason is he talking about? For this reason. And so I kind of went back to the previous chapter, and the previous chapter told me what he's talking about. He's saying, do you realize that this mystery, and I'm going to talk about it again, he'll say, but, you know, this mystery, this so profound mystery about Jew and Gentile can be together. It's the greatest, it's the greatest demonstration of what he can do, how unity can look, because there is no greater divide, like I said three weeks ago, there's no greater divide than a Jew and Gentile. They were about as far apart as you can get. And so if the Lord could put those two groups together, then he can unify anybody under any conditions. And so Paul is saying these, I'm going to just read these, this last verse, in verse 22 of chapter 2, and to him, you, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a dwelling. He's saying you too can be, you can be built together to together become this dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so um, he's saying, for this reason then, for this reason, I am going to go on and tell you some more because I have to tell you this. I have to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And he says this word, um, and I think for a reason. He wants us to know that, of course, he's Paul, but that he's a prisoner 
he puts that in there because he knows human nature, because he is one, and he knows how easy excuses can come in. And he wants this chapter, he wants these next two chapters to really show us that we don't have any excuse. And, and he says, now, I just want you to know that I'm a prison. I mean, so if you think conditions have to be perfect for all this to be working right in your life, and he says, no, I'm in prison. Conditions are not what I wanted them to be. I am not in a place where I wanted to be. But it's the same man that through all of his experience wrote things like, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, I can be content. And he probably said that because he knows that no matter where he was, no matter what was happening to him, God was always there. He was always so close to him. It was the same man that, that said because he learned it, you know, because of his circumstances, he, he learned that. And he will supply all my needs. All what I need, he will supply. He's the same man that says you can rejoice in the Lord always. You know, and he has been so around the block. And he says, what I've got to say, what I've got to tell you, it's something that you can live a life so different, like I prayed, than what the world wants to tell you. So for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, you know, I think that Paul, when he started to write this chapter, I think he started to reminisce. Because look at he said, surely you have heard about the administration. And that's a big word, but it just means you, you've heard that, that God just showered upon me. That it was his will, this was his plan to just put upon me God's grace. So that then I could give it to you. That is the mystery that made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. You know, Paul is not afraid to repeat himself. He's not afraid to, to go on a subject that he's been on before because he knows he, we need to hear it over and again. But, but I think when he's writing these words, I think like any human being, you start reminiscing and thinking about, you know, you know he, his, his, his life, what happened. I mean, he remembers the day. I remember when I stood in front of the Sanhedrin. I was taught by Camilio. There probably wasn't a smarter, I mean, if he was really going to be honest. And he did say that when he was listing his credentials in other letters. You know, he, he said, you know, I was the top of the class. You know, as far as obeying the law, I was blameless. I just did it all right. I mean, I was, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, you know, I mean, he just had so many great credentials. And I think he's starting to think about this and he thinking that, and to think that I thought that that's what I needed to, to be impressive, to show them how good I was at this. And then, you know, you can tell how he's changed so much because now he wants them to know his story. He wants them to know, but then one day, thank 
goodness, I got knocked off my donkey or a horse or I don't even, maybe it was just walking. He got knocked to the ground and the light of Jesus himself and saw, why are you persecuting me? And he said, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. You might be religious. You might be smart and learned, but you've never met me. I bet Paul is remembering those three days where he sat there in utter darkness and he had nothing to do but think about it. And then three days later to have a man named Ananias come and Ananias said, you were chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You think Paul's thing, this is a sheer mystery to me how how he could take someone so different and make them so different. But that's exactly what he's going to talk about in these three chapters. But I think right now he's saying, you know, I've told you my story. Because, you know, Paul, he started the Ephesus church. He started many of the churches in that day. And, and we do believe that this particular letter was sent to, to many of them. And so, you know, he... He did probably stand in front of many of these churches and give his testimony because it is quite the story and it is the beginning of, of his changed life and, and how he then decided to preach instead of standing in front of people to be impressive and show them how smart he is. He says, I'm just going to preach Jesus and him crucified. I'm not here to impress anybody, but I sure am here to make sure you hear and that you know what I know. I'm sure this was all going through his mind because he says, you know, you've heard, but I just, I just need to go back and tell you this again. And then verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. You know, I want you to go back and think about my testimony and how, how this life-changing experience just did change everything for me. And it did open my eyes that once would have been a mystery. If somebody would have told Saul that he was, you know, going to be a preacher to the Gentiles when he was that stout Jew, that would have flabbergasted me. That would have been a major capital M mystery. Not possible. And so Paul is saying, but I want you to know that all of these, all of these experiences in my life are going to help me help you in the insight to this mystery, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit in God's holy apostles and prophets. I mean, you think about that, you know, uh, this this open door to the Gentiles, and you can think about that story with Peter. Uh, he would have been another apostle that would have said, "Not a chance." So what did what did Jesus have to do? He had to put him in this trance, and you know, with the, all the animals in the in that sheet, and and Cornelius, and all that, you know. But Paul is saying, now our eyes have been opened, and because of Jesus, we are all in this together. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Look how many times he uses the word together. Yeah, that, that didn't seem 
impossible before. Look what Jesus did. I became a servant. Look how he changed. Look how his whole purpose for living and his whole purpose for um, teaching, look at how that all changed. Now he, he considers himself a servant. I became a servant of this gospel. But look what he considers it as. It's gift. Oh, he's saying, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. I think right there he wants the people to know I love my job. I am so grateful and that I was called. Remember last time we saw how he introduced this book by saying, you know, I am, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus because it was God's will for me. So content, so ready to say to the Lord, however you want to use me because of what you've done for me. He's the same man that wrote, in view of what God's done for you, offer yourself back to him as a living sacrifice. Although I am less than the least of all God's people. I know that we have heard that line so many times. And, you know, yeah, we still, we still can't hardly imagine Paul, the greatest apostle, who gave us all for, for Jesus' sake and, and for the kingdom. And, and yet, when he looks in the mirror and when he puts all other people aside, he looks in the mirror and he says he can see nothing but I am the worst. I am the worst of God's people. See, no one knows you better than you do. And, you know, we know that we are able to hide things, and we know our weaknesses. We, we know where we stumble, and we, we know all that yuck. And Paul knew all his yuck, and that's why he said, I, I am the least. But I think that is a line that when you start understanding God's grace. Do you know that the more you understand God's grace and what that means, and never define that word grace without using the word undeserved, because that's what grace is. It's so undeserved. But the more you understand this undeserved favor that he puts upon us, do you know that that just strips pride away you can't possibly understand God's grace on your life and then stand with all self-pride. So if you, if you want to nip pride out of your life, all you have to do is study that word and understand. I think that's what just changed Paul from being this, this big, trained, Sanhedrin member and leader to this servant of the Lord Jesus, which he considered a gift. Now he says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, oh, oh, this somewhat I wanted to say this is that I think that should be a line that that you and I say sometime in our life. That some that sometime we get to that place that we know that amazing, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace so well that you can't possibly look in the mirror and, and know what you once were, the way that song started tonight. 
once you realize what you once were and why Paul put a whole chapter together to make sure that we do always remember what he saved us from. We were all, I am all, I am the less. I am less than the least of God's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. Now, Paul's language is so beautiful. You can tell that he was still able to use his education and all that because he writes so beautifully. And he uses descriptive words. And when he said that, he said, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone. You know, he could be, in his language, he could be really complicated. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've heard, you've heard people speak and I mean, you just sometimes wonder, what did they just say? I mean, it was so far beyond your comprehension. It just went right over your head. And, you know, some people are just so highly educated. They, they think they're talking in their everyday language. But to us everyday folk, and Paul, I think, was like that. I think he could have talked right over everybody's head. And he said, no, I want to make sure that I talk plain. I want everybody, no matter who they are, from the lowliest to the highest to the, you know, from the richest to the poorest. I mean, he said, I just want to make sure this message is so plain that no one can say they didn't understand it. Because he says, I, I want to make sure that it's plain to everyone. Make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. This is God's plan. This is what God wants. He wants, to, he wants to administer this mystery on you, which for the ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul says, I, I want you to know that you don't have to live in a mystery anymore. You can know if God can, can unite a Jew and a Gentile and put them at the same table and, and get them to be friends and get them to call each other brother and sister in the Lord, that is so miraculous. I want you to know that he can do what you might think is impossible. His intent, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, and maybe this is one of the blessings of reading it every day, is that, you know, all of a sudden I saw his intent. And then, sure, I want to know what his intent was, but he, he sticks this little few words in there that his intent was that now, how? Through the church. And the church is who? I mean, right away it comes right back at you and me and shows that this is our responsibility. We are the church, and he plans on using you and I. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, I almost, I almost went by that and totally would have missed that that's quite amazing because, well, I wrote it down and I'm going to read it what I wrote down because I don't want to say it any different. God doesn't use the angels to reveal his wisdom 
to the saints. He doesn't use his angels to reveal his wisdom, but rather he uses us. He uses us, the saints, to reveal his wisdom to the angels, to the angelic beings. So by our lives, we are not only showing the people who are around us, who are watching us, who are looking at us, we're not only living our lives for them to see Christ through us, but it says it right there, that his intent was that through us, the church, the manifold, which means the different dimensions of wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. That's quite a responsibility. It's not the angels that show us God's wisdom. It's us that show the angels. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, in him and, and through faith in him. So in Jesus and through our belief in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that something that we can go right into God's presence knowing that because of Jesus we've been set free, our sins have been bought, we don't have to carry that baggage, our sins have been bought and paid for, past, present, and future, and we can go into his, his presence with that kind of freedom and with that kind of confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. He, he puts this, he inserts this here. He inserts this here because after what he just said from verses, you know, 1 to 1 through 12, he, he knows that these churches are probably thinking by now, oh, he's in prison and he's there because of us and and. Paul doesn't want them to all of a sudden turn and change gears and say, you know, and miss the message because they're feeling so bad. So he says, stop right there. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. I want you to stop thinking about that right now, that it was your fault, that you have to feel guilty. Therefore, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Because I was willing to tell you this story, because I was willing to make sure that you know who he is through my testimony, through my life, through the teachings that he's given me. I want you to know it was a gift to be able to do that. And someday we are all going to share in his glory in glory. I think he's probably writing, and then at this point, I think, I think he just falls to his knees. I, it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. You can kind of picture him just leave his chair and his table, and he gets on his knees, and he just loves to incorporate the Trinity. I know some people like to avoid that subject because they think it's so complicated that one God could be three different persons. But, you know, the more that you understand what each person does in your salvation and in your life in Christ, it is not hard to understand. And here he incorporates, again, the Trinity. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, God the Father, from whom... 
His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He started it all. He came up with a plan. He's the one, and you're going to see it, that Paul talks about. He's the one that loved in this unmeasurable kind of love. To look at pathetic sinners who made their own choice and say, I want to change all that. I pray, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, see, there's, there's that word, you know, he's talking about the riches. First it was the unsearchable riches. Now it's, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. See, now he wants you and I to know that there are no excuses because he has given a power. And you can quote it, I can quote it, but it's time we start living like we believe it. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He said, I, I am praying that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with this power through his spirit in your inner being. See, because what's in our inner being is then what comes out of us. So that this power in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you can know, that you can believe that Christ dwells. He actually dwells through his spirit in your heart. I know we can say the words, we know it and all that, but... Paul is saying, are you really living like you know it? Because it's life-changing. It's transforming. And I pray, too, he says, that you being rooted and established. Two words that I think sound pretty strong, pretty unshakable, unmovable. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints. Then he uses the word to grasp. You know, when, whenever this strong language is used, like cling or grasp, Paul isn't all afraid to, to say, it's not just a matter of holding on, you have to grasp it. He says, I want you, and it's going to take the Holy Spirit power inside of you for you to grasp something that is this amazing. He says, so that you may have power together with all things to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ you know, I think it's something that we have to stop every now and then and grasp again. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you may be filled. See, he wants us filled. And if you are not filled with the fullness of God, then you are going to be filled with someone else. And that's you and me. And that's what's so prevalent in the world. 
And even in a lot of Christians, they don't understand unless you really study God's word. You know, you think that, you know, your certain activities or your certain time that you, you know, might read the Bible or whatever. But he, Paul is saying this is far more than just a minute here, five minutes there, ten minutes there. He says, I want you filled all the time with the fullness of God. So there's no room for self to take you off the track. And off the track means so that you start thinking the way the world does. You start fear being fearful and you start you start looking at hopelessness instead of hopeful. It just changes you. He says you need to know that this Holy Spirit wants you to grasp God's love for you so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Unfortunately, I just wish we had one big filling and then that was good. And that we never went back. And he's going to explain to us exactly what happens and why. But, but right now, he says... We have to be mindful that we that we got to work at being filled. That it isn't something is a one-time thing because, unfortunately, you know, we are elbow to elbow in this world. We're rubbing elbows with and the news, and you know, he says, I, "I need you to make sure that you are working at staying filled with the fullness of God. That that's who's feeding you." And then he says these verses that we heard so many times as benediction, but, but he's saying it just to you and I. He says, now, look, I want, not to him, not to Jesus in his spirit who is able, who is able. That means he can do it. The verse that popped into my mind was, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And by the way, Paul wrote that too. And so when he said, now to him who is able, Paul knows that God is able to do what we think is not possible. And that's why he says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than what we could ever ask or imagine. Paul knows that human beings just love to have excuses. They just love to have excuses for why they behave the way they behave and say what they say. And, and they just love to have excuses. And, and Paul is trying to get us to see there isn't any. You don't have an excuse because not to him who is able to do what you think is impossible. He, he can do immeasurably more than you can ever imagine or think. But how does he do it? He does it not through you. He does it through the spirit that's in you. And this is what we have to learn. So we've seen the Father, we've seen Jesus, and Paul is working us into understanding it's so important that we utilize the spirit. Remember when in, in Ephesians 1.13, when Paul said, you want to be included in Christ? Well, this is what it takes. You, you, you hear this gospel, not just with your physical ears, but you hear wanting to hear the truth and then you choose to believe it and then he says then you're marked you're sealed with the holy spirit and you are guaranteed of what is to come so this is why he says to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
because he's at work in us. We just got to let him do his work. And I think, I think when Paul, I think he gets up because I think he's been on his knees, you know. And I think, you know, when he says this, it's like, that's right. <laughs> he is ready to do immeasurably more than what I can imagine. In him, there are no limits. He can do all that through me. No excuses. I think it rose him to his feet. I really do because he says, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's an exclamation point in there. I don't think that he could stay on the ground there. I think he just had to get up and praise and give God glory. And then chapter 4, after we've been, this is right, remember a letter. Do you ever start a letter in the middle? No. You start a letter at the beginning, and it has a flow to it, you know, and a lot of the newsy news is right in the center, but you don't want to start because there's a beginning and a reason for the beginning and intro to get you into the newsy part. I mean, you, we all know the format of a letter. That's the way, but after doing chapter 1 and chapter 2 and now chapter 3, he says, now, as a prisoner for the Lord, just another subtle reminder, because I know you're going to try to just try to weasel out of this. I know you're going to try to say, yeah, but, you know, that's not even, that's not even possible. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, he, he's going to say, you're going to, you're going to have a tendency to say, but you don't know my circumstances right now. You don't know the kind of family I have, or you don't know the kind of unlovable people that live next door to me. You don't know the circumstances and all that, you know. And Paul, uh, don't, don't even tell me about that. I'm a prisoner. I'm dealing with these Romans every day, so don't even try to give me that cockamamie excuse. So he says... As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. I mean, Paul knows he can't make people, but he's saying, I want you to know how important this is, and I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. I want you to live. What does that mean? What is live your life worthy of the calling? What's, what's the calling on your life? I mean, you're, the calling on your life is when you heard the gospel and chose to believe it and, and you walked to that cross and you, you felt the humility and you saw yourself the way you really were. And then you took that grace and he hugged you with it. And then he turned you and I around and said, no, this is the way I want you to live. And I think he says, and you owe it to me. Because you are not your own anymore. You've been bought with a big price tag, and I paid it for you. And so now, now, I mean, there's no way you're not going to ever pay him back. But he does expect. And so Paul is trying to say, I urge you to live your life worthy of that calling. And then he starts describing, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. I mean, he knows these are hard things. And then he says, I want you to 
bear with one another. I want you bearing with one another in love. And he uses that word bearing because he knows it's not easy. Some people are just hard to love. But he's saying you got to bear it. And then he says, if you, if you, if you are starting to doubt yourself, like, no, no, I, I just can't be humble and gentle. It's just hard for me to bear with one another in love. And that's the just, he'll, he'll say, um, go back to the previous chapter, not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than what you could ever think or he will do it through you. Be completely humble, gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Look, verse 3, make, make every effort. He knows this isn't easy. But he says you have, to make a, you have to make a choice. You've got to make a conscientious decision. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Through the bond of peace. And isn't that one of the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, it just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That, you know, when the Holy Spirit, when you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, the character of Christ working through you, yeah, you find this love and you find this joy. You find this unity possible and you start living more in peace instead of all tensed up. And he said, and this is why. Because we are all the same. We're all in this together on what? There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That unites us. Remember three weeks ago, we talked about God's intent was to put all people under one head. And that's perfectly feasible because there is only one, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all. And then in verse 7, he starts now moving into, okay, um, we got to talk about how we're going to do this says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That, until I read on and really studied further, I, I was a little troubled by that at first because I thought, oh my goodness, I bet it took more grace for him to save me than it did Alan. <laughs> oh, and I know it took far more grace to save me than Linda. I mean, we all know people that, you know, we just have such high respect for and who demonstrate their love for the Lord so much. And you think, me, is that what he means? Is that, you know, Jesus didn't have to die quite as hard for them. I mean, that just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And I'm doing this on purpose. Because sometimes we do look at people and then, okay, now I'm going to flip it and say, oh, boy, it took a lot of grace for him to save that one more than me. 
I mean, I know we we don't like to put it into words like that, but that questioned me. And then, I mean, it's just like the Lord came right into my presence and made it so clear. Like, oh, brother, are you wrong about that? It took just as much grace to save everyone the same because everyone was just as lost. So that's not, he's not talking about the grace that was needed to save us. Now he's talking, because now we're in chapter 4, and he's saying, now to be able to do all of 1, 2, 3, and then part of 4, to be able to live the way he wants you to live, humbly and gently, and, you know, making every effort to live, and and together in peace, and all this kind of thing. He's saying, um, the Spirit's going to give you different gifts. So, and he will apportion those gifts because he knows you so well. He knows where he's going to put you. And he knows what people are going to be in, in, in and out of your life. And he, he knows where he's going to land you on a certain job and all this kind of thing. And so he knows exactly what gift he's going to give to each and every one of us. So that is such a beautiful verse. To, but that's even grace because he didn't have to give us anything. But instead, this grace, that's why grace has just so many facets to it. He didn't send us out there saying, well, good luck, folks. No, he gave us his Holy Spirit, and then who then will produce this Christ-like character. But then he said, I will, through this same grace, I will, I will pick gifts so that you can be used right where you're at. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. In verse 9, now he's wanting you and I to now picture what Christ did and how he started you know, he started in heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is equal Godhead. So now he's saying, before he, he does verse 11, he says, I want you to picture this. What does he ascend and mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So he said, in, in a different kind of way, he said, look what he did. I mean, he left heaven, and then he lived as a human, and then he, he descended to absolutely the lowest of a human, and that is death and buried. I know in the Apostles' Creed, it said he descended into hell. Now, we don't know, and I don't quite understand all that, but I would dare say that when he was on the cross, when, when he took on every sin, here, here was somebody who knew absolutely no sin, and now he took on every one of your sins and my sins, and his father had to turn his back. Now, I would say that had to have been some kind of dimension of hell. He descended to the lowest. The death on a cross, the forsaken by his father. He, he was taken and put into a tomb. He was buried. He descended into the lowest depths of human nature. Death. To what then? 
He who descended is the very one who then ascended. And I was doing this. He started here, and then he went down to the lowest, and then he went back. He came out of that grave. He, is, he was resurrected. He ascended then on that mountain, and he went back to his rightful position, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, preparing a place for you and I. So Paul says, look what he did. Look what it took. And it was he, it, it was Jesus who did all that, who gave some. See, that's why these gifts are so, they're so real and they're so authentic. And, and so when we look at our spiritual gifts, he's saying, it's not something to think lightly of. This God who came from heaven and descended to the lowest, but then ascended back to his rightful place, it is magnificent what he did. He said, it's that same God that's given you the gift, given you the gifts so that you could be able, and he's going to tell you why he did that. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. <laughs> Maybe you read that a few times and you thought, well, mine's not in there. Apparently, I don't have them. I don't have a gift or whatever. I'm, I, you know, because I, you know, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a pastor. Not a teacher, you know. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Maybe you don't stand behind a pole, but maybe you're not sent to Africa. But if you've got somebody in your life that's watching you, that's looking up to you, that's depending on you to give and feed them the truth. But it gives us all different kinds of abilities to do that. Look, at, even though we all have different gifts there's only, these gifts were given for one reason. And look at that is, to prepare God's people for works of service. The, you know, God intended for you and I to walk from the cross back into our lives and all of a sudden start realizing that we got work to do. We have a responsibility. And so he gives us the gifts to be able to, we all need to, be prepared to be able to prepare others of God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He says that again, the fullness of Christ. You know, it is real. I had a conversation with a gal this week about these gifts. And, and she, we were talking, and she was one that, that had a tendency to think that her gifts, you know, weren't as important as. And I'm thinking to myself, so I, I said to her, I said, now, without, you know, being too silly here, I said, okay, now you say that I feed you the message of Jesus. I. You, 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 are, you are saying to me that, yes, I am showing you how to know him better. She says, there is nothing that I could do for you. And I, I got her to see a few things in her life that I can't possibly do. 
But because she's so used to it, it's so part of her, she never saw it as a gift that she could give to me so that together we give each other what the purpose to be able to serve. So she finally saw that that's why he proportioned differently to different people so that I can help her in one area and that she can help me in an area I have no I have ability at all. The way the body of Christ works, it just makes such sense when he said that this is why, so that the body of Christ may be built up. We need all, so that we can be unified and we can become mature. Verse 14, then, and why is maturity so important? Then we will no longer be infants. Have you ever seen an adult act like a kid? That's just, that's just nonsense. When you see an adult with childish behavior, but he, he is saying that we need to grow up spiritually. You can't continuously, you know, Paul talks about, you know, you can't just drink milk. <laughs> it's good at the beginning, but no, you need to chew on something. We need to move on so we can start chewing, you know. And, and this is the spiritual connotation is that you can't stay baby, an infant, because you will be tossed about. You'll believe every fad that comes along. Well, listen to what he says. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth because this is what would happen. With immaturity, you're tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. There's so many crazy things going on today. And if you are not grounded in God's word, if you don't have the Holy Spirit just making sure that you just feel that red flag saying, you better check the Bible on that one. I know you are good at what you're saying and you're very convincing. But look what he calls it. Craftiness, deceitful scheming. If the Holy Spirit isn't at work in you, you're going to buy into all that stuff. And you're going to be tossed about. I'll tell you, I love it when I, don't you, when you sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame. And then you get to that chorus, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And you know, Jesus gave that parable. I was built on the rock. I was built on the sand. What a visual and unless you are mature and you're growing in the Lord and you get to know him better. I heard, of, I heard something this week. That if you don't have a desire to know him better, if that's not an interest to you, to work it. Because it does take work. But if you, if you don't have an interest to know him better, if that's not a priority to you, you don't really know him at all. Because if you know him, you just got to know him better and better. That jolted me. If you don't have this longing, this hunger and thirst to know him better. Remember, like we said three weeks ago, Paul said, I pray every day that you get to know him better. If you don't have a desire to mature and know him better, then you're just going to get tossed about believing every little thing that comes along and you start being tossed about and you start being fearful and but on Christ's solid rock I stand. 
All other ground is seeking sand. Instead, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we will in all things grow up. Oh, I like that. I like that. The more you put into this, you're going to grow up. I want to grow up. I don't want, I don't want to be an infant. I don't want to be scripturally illiterate. I don't want to be one that follows every little fad that comes along. I want to be grounded on the rock. And that takes speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Such a visual of what the human body is like. You know, we need every ligament, muscle, and everything working together so that our shoulders stay in place and our arms and our legs, you know. So he gives you that visual, and he says, spiritually, that's how, with all of us working together, Verse 17, so I tell you this, and I insist. And now, you know, he's going to wrap up this part of his letter, and he's saying, um, I've told you a lot in this chapter. He started by saying, I urge you. I can't make you, but I urge you. Now in verse 17, you hear him say, I insist on this in the Lord. I'm not trying to be bossy. I, I insist on this in the Lord because I know this is what the Lord is telling you, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I think that's just Paul's way of saying, don't go backward. And it's so easy to, it's so easy to go backward. But he's saying, I insist, the Lord insists that we no longer live like we used to do. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance. That's such a good word. That's what no one likes to be thought of as ignorant. But he's saying if you aren't willing to learn it, if you, if you are scripturally illiterate, that means you're ignorant to what God is saying and what he's able to do through you and I. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You know why? People don't look at themselves as ignorant. They just consider themselves self-sufficient. Yeah, but once you have been the grasp and the cling and humble before them, you think, that's just stupidity. It is your ignorance. If you think that yourself, you know, that your self-reliance and is good enough, you're self-sufficient. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I hope you read that a number of times so that you can see that once self has taken over and, and you don't surrender and comply to Christ's instructions for salvation. You don't listen. He, he uses the word, guess what's going to happen? It's just, self is just going to suck you into itself more and more. You're going to, you're just, it's just going to get uglier by the day and you're going to get blinder by the day. Don't even realize what self is doing to you. 
I mean, there's no contentment, that continual lust for more. I mean, isn't that the world today? That continual lust for more. You, however, this verse is great because Paul says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. I think Paul said, I did not teach you that way of life. I did not teach you that that was the kind of life that was going to bring you salvation and give you the kind of life that Paul said, no, no, no. I, I did not teach that you did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him, in Jesus, accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Paul says, I know because that's what I taught you. That's what I taught you. You were taught with regard to your former, former way of life. You see, Paul is so good on this topic to see how we need to be transformed. And look how he puts it here. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Did you notice that he didn't say, uh, let's let Christ fix up that old you? No, you are to put off the old you and put on the new you. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what he expects. Now, isn't it true that we know that put off the old, put on the new? Oh, don't you just wish it would just stay brand spanking new and that everything, like we said, was you stay filled with the fullness of God. But unfortunately, living in this world and living in this human frame and self so prevalent, you know, we, we happen to see that old self. Uh, Tom couldn't be here tonight. He had something from his work, but he gave me permission to say Last week, we had a little spat. Now, maybe none of you couples ever have those anymore, but we had a little spat, and I turned to him, and I said to him, because he, he came out with, you know, a, a tone and an attitude, and, and I looked at him, and I said, oh, my word, is that ever the old time? Because it was. And it just stopped him in his tracks. And haven't you ever done that? Haven't you caught yourself in, in the, in the, you know, in that minute of, I mean, out it comes. It just, there was just, there was no filter. There was no control because out came what you were feeling. I mean, and it was such a wonderful thing to see him say, oh, I hate him. I hate him. And, you know, James says that. 
hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And I think that we can even describe hate what is evil as that old self. And so when Tom said, I just hate him. And how quick he saw that. And how gracious God is. And you can, again, re-enter that new self. So, you know, it's going to happen. We are going to see that old self creep in. But I hope that it happens less and less. But when it does, we are very aware of it and we hate it. Because we have been made new. Put on the new self. Created to be like God. Yeah. And to, to live in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. When I look at a verse like that, I think, okay, now, what, what does that mean for me? And I just think you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, it's be real. I mean, you know how easy it is to act and be a certain way with certain people. I think this verse is, is for us, no matter what person we're with, even how to be when we're alone. You see, and just be real. Be the kind of person that no matter who you're with, it doesn't matter because... The fullness of God is in you and coming out of you. And that you don't have to be fake or put on a kind of air or, oh, just be real with anybody. That is what's so winsome. People can tell, and when you are genuine, when you are real, this is, I think, a big thing God wants from his children. In your anger, don't you love the way Paul said that? In your anger, he knows that we're going to get mad. There are things that are going to upset us. He didn't say that that was the problem. He knows that sometimes we're just going to have to be angry and be mad and be upset. But he's saying, right then, identify it and say, okay, now how am I going to handle this? And he says, you know, yeah, you're going to be angry, but don't sin. In other words, how quick it is to fly off the handle, to say words. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That's all he needs is a little crack. And boy, he can take it out to anger. I've watched anger turn into bitterness and to hatred, and it just destructs. And so he's saying, you know, grab a hold of it right away. And then he says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. 
You know what the best thing is when, when you know, you get mad or when you might have an emotion that could easily get out of control and, and do damage. You know what he says the best thing to do is go do something for somebody else. Get, get your mind and get your eyes off yourself. And not only is it going to help you, but it could be something that might help somebody else too. And then all of a sudden you're going to look and you're going to say, whoa, that feels, that's the way it's supposed to feel. Do not let, do not let any unwholesomeness or unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. <laughs> Anybody underline that? I mean, maybe you don't have trouble with that, but um, I put a star by that. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And you know, Sometimes we think, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't cuss. I don't swear. Oh, man, there's so much more to unwholesome talk than just having a few cuss words come out of our mouth. Unwholesome talk is, is critical, negative. It's when you, when you gossip. And he's saying, you know, it's so easy to do, but he said, do not let unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Because people are listening. When you're talking, somebody's listening. And if it's unwholesome talk, do you know... Um, Chad preached sermon Sunday, and, and uh, I listened to it Sunday night. And when I got done listening to it, I, I turned it back and listened to it again. And there was a line in there that I just had to keep hearing it over and over. And he said, the gospel is preached 24-7 through our lives. What's the title of your sermon? You know, if we wear that name Christian and we professed to be a follower of Christ, then the gospel is being preached 24-7 through our lives. Verse 30, do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I mean, he says, remember, I told you that, Ephesians 1.13. So he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean, to grieve God's Spirit? When you come up with all your excuses, when you just let him sit there powerless because you think you are self-sufficient and you don't utilize all what he's got for you to do the immeasurably more than you can imagine or think. That grieves him when he's just sitting there and you think you're self-sufficient. It grieves him when you're living your life contrary to the instruction that God said, I want you to live like. And I've given you the helper, capital H, to do that through you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. 
I mean, you can fill your own words in there. And he says, get rid of it. Well, I can't. You know, I just can't. Oh, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more with his power that raised him from the dead, I'd say that he could get, help you get rid of that kind of mouth and those kind of feelings, those destructive feelings. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. And then here's the blinger. And remember the song that said that we can live in this freedom because we, we are loved and forgiven. And in this last little verse, little part of the verse, not only be kind and compassionate to one another, and it's hard, but he said this is what God expects, forgiving forgiving each other. And how do you do that? How do I do that? It's so hard. You don't understand what they've done. I mean, it's not fair, and uh, I want them to hurt. I mean, I'm going to teach them a lesson. They're going to pay. Oh, we've got all the defenses. But he says, no, I want you to forgive each other just as Christ. Just as Christ, who is God, forgave you. So when you come up with all your, yeah, but aren't you glad that Christ, who is God, didn't say, well, I should forgive her, but no, he just did. Heavenly Father, this is so truth. It's so right there. And Father, may this little song that we're going to end with tonight May this little chorus be a desire of our heart. And you, you have promised that you will grant the desires of our heart. When they, when they coexist and when they, when they are joined with your desire, and we know this is your desire, may this be our desire to be like you. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask. May that be something, oh, we have plenty of things that we can ask you for to make us happy and comfortable. But, Lord, may we see from these chapters that all I ask is to be like him all through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask is to be like him. And we know that that is possible because you've given us every tool, you've given us your very spirit, and you've promised us that you can do immeasurably more through us than what we even have touched the surface. And that's why we say to you, be all glory and praise. And we pray it in our Savior's name. Amen.